Great. Okay, that's amazing. Great news. Okay, so hello everyone. Um, uh, as Oliver has said, my name is Mary. Um, I was involved in a placement uh, at English Heritage as part of my PhD at the University of Bristol. Um, and because my PhD was looking at the ways in which people interacted with and imagined local Arthurian places in the late Middle Ages and early modern period, um, this project really appealed to me and I was very lucky to be able to um, help work on the myths and legends map with English heritage and I'll tell you a bit about that just now. So, first of all, what is this map? It would help if you all knew what I was talking about, so I'd better explain. Um, essentially, um, English Heritage's theme of the year when I was working with them was myths and legends. Um, and there were many components to this theme, including several, like a book of short stories um, and the Telling Tales project, I think, that Hannah and um, Kate are going to speak about shortly. Um, and the map was part of this. Um, it's essentially a project to crowdsource and map England's myths, legends and folklore according to place. Um, and the way it looks is it's, it's a, an online map of England. Uh, that's preloaded with some myths, legends and folklore connected with English heritage sites. Um, and then once it went live, anyone was able to uh, submit a myth, legend or folktale connected to a particular place, which would then show up on the map. So that's essentially how it works. Um, what are the benefits of a project like this um, for heritage people, for academics, uh, public, um, you know, all the different people? What are the benefits for everyone? Um, firstly, um, it's a way to obviously crowdsource myths and legends from the public um, because people are, of course, more likely to be familiar with stories from their own local area. And it's a way of gathering all of that knowledge together into one place. Um, of course, for us, for English Heritage, it's an excellent way of building engagement with myths and legends connected with English Heritage sites as well. Um, as we've already heard today, we've got lots and lots of very old uh, sites um, in our sort of portfolio. Um, and many of them have really interesting myths, legends and folklore connected with them. Uh, so it's a great way of building engagement with those. Um, collecting stories in map form like this um, for the purposes of researchers is really interesting because it allows certain patterns to emerge visually. Um, and I think that it also helped us to gain a really interesting understanding of the heritage value of myths, legends and folklore, which is something I think that organisations like English Heritage are starting to think more about. Um, sort of these other kinds of heritage objects that are not necessarily physical. Um, when it came to making the map, we worked together with an artist called Clive Hicks Jenkins to come up with the illustrations in the map. And this includes pictures of English heritage sites, event flags, the story quill at the beginning, which you'll see in a second in the video, uh, and also little animated happenings on the map, deer that move, sea monsters that pull ships under the sea to really make the map come to life. And then we also teamed up with a Bristol-based digital agency called Gravity Well, and they helped us to actually build the map, put it together so it was ready to go online and be used by people. Um, and bringing together a very traditional analog artist like Clive with a group of kind of younger, a very tech-focused designers um, was a kind of get, gives the map its charm, I think, because you're bringing together those two worlds. And you'll see when I show you the video, um, in terms of my role, I came quite late in the process and I was involved with researching and writing a cross section of some stories to be preloaded onto the map so that the public, uh, once it went live, weren't just faced with this very beautiful but very blank looking map and actually had some stories that they could read as well as in, uh, adding their own contributions. Um, I've got a little video clip now. Hopefully the sound should work. 
Old maps are full of these sea monsters. It's one of my references, which is this fantastic book on sea monsters on medieval and renaissance maps. And that's been really useful to look at. So although I'm working in my own style and using historic references, one of the things that will happen on the map, the first thing that we see is what we're calling a, a cartouche. What you'll have is this light shape over a dark background and there will be writing in the middle of it and then the digital eye goes through this and descends through clouds and onto the map. English heritage presenting a map, heritage presenting a map about myths and legends. So we have references to buildings in care and we've used George and the Dragon as the crowning glory of this particular cartouche because uh, George is one of the characters that we'll be investigating. And they just add a little sweetness to the feel of going into an environment that we're going to be drawn into because it's a living, breathing environment. I think one of the things about animation and things about puppetry is that you need to get the feeling that the characters are breathing, that there's, there's life going on. Stillness is kind of death, movement is life. And so just having a little bit of animation on top of this will be quite charming and will lead us through. And then as we go through, the flights of birds go past as we go down, descend through the clouds. And then all of a sudden, here we are, we see the map. So there you go, that um, sort of gives you a taster of what the map's like um, and Clive's experience in, in um, putting together, putting it together and building it. Um, before I get into some of the things that we learned about the map um, after it went live, um, I want to share three examples of um, kind of a cross-section of different entries um, that we attracted. And I've partly selected these to complement some of the papers that we've heard during the symposium, papers by um, Diane um, and um, and uh, Lisa and other people, um, but also because I think that they are quite different and they showcase some of the interesting bits of knowledge that we ended up with in the map. The first one is the tale of Nancy Camel and the Devil. So indulge me in a little bit of storytelling. Um, this is a piece of uh, witch folklore from Shepton Mallet in Somerset, where I used to live. Um, Nancy Camel lived in Shepton. She was quite a strange lady by all accounts. She was often seen drunk at the shambles in the center of town. And she paid her rent by knitting and selling wool stockings because Shepton was a thriving hub for the wool trade at the time. Now, being a self-sufficient spinster was something seen in some circles as rather suspicious, apparently, according to the story in the 18th century. So Nancy was rumored to also be a professional witch. In the earliest version of the story, Nancy moved to a cave in Darcel Woods, just above Shepton Mallet, to escape from her sneering neighbors. Interestingly, later renditions of the story say that the Industrial Revolution was responsible for destroying Nancy's career, knitting and selling stockings off her own bat, and that's what forced her to vacate her home. Once she was in the cave, Nancy continued knitting, even on Sundays, God forbid, and sold potions and teasels. 
one evening there was a terrible storm, uh, which we think perhaps might be the storm of 1703, when local Mendip residents thought the world was ending, and Bishop Kidder of Bartham Wells, along with his wife, were killed by a falling chimney. In the middle of the storm, a piercing shriek was heard, a whip crack and creaking wheels. Shepton residents wondered how Nancy was faring up in the cave, and they walked up the following morning, only to find that Nancy had disappeared, and wheel tracks and horses hoof prints were impressed on the stone at the cave's entrance. The people said that the devil had come in his horse and cart to drag Nancy Camel to hell. The marks remain to this day as a reminder of the events. I find this tale interesting for a few reasons. Um, partly because I know the area and I've walked up to the cave myself and much as the witch's orchards, witch's orchard cottage that Lisa spoke about in her presentation on Friday, the cave is very much not managed and off the beaten track. You'll only find it and you'll only know the story if you know where to look. But secondly, I think that this is an interesting example of how the historical context of the um, of the time, so in this example, the Industrial Revolution, can become incorporated into a story in later tellings. And this is what we found when we looked at the sources. A second example, so this is for everyone interested in sort of dark folklore, dark tourism, and also um, the magical um, properties, supernatural properties of mounds. So this kind of chimes with Diane's paper from Friday. This is Michael Murray's hump on the Isle of Wight. It's a Bronze Age barrow with a dark story attached. It is said, according to the story, that in the 18th century, a local man murdered his orphaned grandson in a nearby cottage, setting fire to the building to hide the evidence. He was captured in a nearby cave and was hanged for his crime on the downs, the gibbet being constructed on top of the burial mound in which he was then buried. It is said that those who walk around the hump at midnight 12 times, calling Michael Moray's name three times, will summon his ghost. Now, this is an interesting one because there is actual real events that we can that we can look to for the origins of this legend. And the real story is just as disturbing. Moray was a woodcutter and he really did kill his 14-year-old grandson in 1736. After murdering the poor boy, Moray was then taken to Winchester for his trial and hanged and killed in Winchester before his body was brought back and left to hang on the Isle of Wight in Moray's hometown to deter other criminals. And in fact, the gibbet really was erected on top of this hump. The local pub, the Hare and Hounds at Down End, has the gibbet post on display along with a skull said for years to belong to Moray, although recent testing has actually found that it is the skull of a Bronze Age teenage woman which may have come from one of the nearby mounts. The place where Moray is said to have burned down the cottage is now called Burnt House Lane, and the nearby wood is called Burnt House Woods. I like this admittedly rather dark story because we know exactly the point of origin, although some elements have been fabricated or exaggerated, such as the skull and the fact that he was actually killed and buried on the mound. Nevertheless, I do find it interesting that the body was brought to be displayed at the mound, and this, along with the folklore about circling the mound, as I say, has some nice resonances, I think, with what Diane spoke about on Friday. I also found it interesting to see a pub benefiting from and engaging in uh, this kind of dark tourism, and I suspect that there are many, many pubs across England that tap into local folklore in this way for the benefit of guests. Um, and my last example now, something a little different, more of an urban folk tale, um, and something uh, that um, I really like. So we know that folklore centers on prominent topographical features, hills, barrows, lakes, caves, etc. But in cities, prominent architecture often takes on this role, it takes the place of landscape features in, in this respect. 
Above the ornate rear door to Newcastle Cathedral's buildings, just opposite St. Nicholas Churchyard, you will find the frightening effigy of a black rabbit with sharp, bloody fangs protruding from its jaws. Originally, it was a normal sandy colour before it was repainted in its current spooky form. According to local tradition, the fanged rabbit used to come to life and leap down from the doorway to attack grave robbers. Oh, excuse me, I seem to have jump slides. To attack grave robbers, sucking their blood. Others have suggested that it might be a hare whose ears were put on backwards rather than a rabbit, because, of course, hares are widespread in folklore. They appear elsewhere on our map. Um, but I do wonder whether that is kind of an attempt to explain an origin or invent an origin for this legend to make it sound even older and more kind of magical than, than it is. Um, what challenges, um, aside from the obvious technical ones, did we have in building a map like this? Um, well, we had to deal with the issue of managing incoming submissions, and this did include some screening because we didn't want to uh, the map to become overloaded with offensive or inappropriate content, um, particularly given some of the concerns that Sue Heaney, for example, raised on Friday in her question and answer session about um, you know, people with extreme political views trying to hijack um, heritage. Um, in some respects. Um, although actually in the end, this was not a huge issue. What was more of a problem content submitted was supported with some kind of source, um, which I think raises very interesting questions about when something becomes folklore. We had some submissions along the lines of, my gran saw a ghost once in this place or that place. And we tried to encourage stories, stories that were represented um, something experienced by more than one person. And that required a source of some sort, a newspaper article, perhaps old books, online sources maybe. But of course, not every piece of folklore is well attested in such sources. Um, so that raised some interesting questions. Um, we also wanted to try and get a good geographical spread of stories and encourage submissions of kind of a, a fairly uniform length and tone, just so that it, the map is accessible to people. And that's part of what, why I was in, engaged in preloading some submissions onto the map. So I picked one story from each county, um, which was really fun um, researching all of those. Um, the map has been uh, a real success for English heritage and uh, set out to achieve a lot of what we wanted it to. We received over 250 submissions in total, so there was lots of public interest. Um, and what I found interesting was that we received positive responses from many places. It's not just the people from these local places that know them that were excited about the map. I had a, a great email from um, somebody in Massachusetts in the US who submitted something for Oxfordshire because they'd spent time as a student there many years ago and they actually emailed me just to say how much they appreciated the map which was really nice um what else did we learn well we saw some interesting patterns emerging in the map once we began to see the stories populating it um both from the public and also through my own research um so for example we saw a proliferation of bell related legends underwater bells on england's south coast and these do pop up all around the coastline but i was surprised at just how many seem to be clustered in hampshire and sussex so that's interesting um as i mentioned just now when i spoke about the vampire rabbit i also found it interesting to see the ways in which architecture civic parks and other such urban spaces took on the role of kind of um prominent uh, sites um, from sort of more topographical places in the countryside and the way that folklore seemed to cluster around them. Um, and finally, I thought it was also quite interesting to note that occasions when a folktale myth or legend seems to have outlived the places to which it is attached. So the examples that immediately spring to mind here are 
the bower of the terrifying blue-skinned cannibalistic witch Black Annis from the Dane Hills in Leicestershire. The landscape which gave birth to this story has now very much changed, but you can still find a Black Annis close if you turn down the right residential street. Um, there's also a pub connected with Dick Turpin that is now gone, it's just a car park, but people are still interested. And I think that, that cases like this raise interesting questions about how long these stories will last and whether they will change in the way they're told and passed down once the places connected with them have changed or gone. Of course, these are perennial questions for folklorists. Um, finally, what's next? Uh, well, you'll be happy to hear that the map will stay online and you can still visit it. Um, if you just Google Myths Map English Heritage, it'll pop straight up and you can explore. Um, we, we just thought it was such a valuable set of um, data and such a lovely object that we decided to keep it online. And in fact, English Heritage does have something else in the pipeline that has built on what we've learned during this project and is similar in some ways. I can't say too much about that, but I will say watch this space. Um, and yeah, just thanks for watching my presentation today and I hope you've enjoyed my stories. <laughs>